Welcome to the Do Something Beautiful podcast. I am your host, Leah Darrow, and I share with you inspirational people who are truly doing something beautiful to make our world better. We are inspired by the words of St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who said, do something beautiful for God. Do it with your life. Do it every day. Do it in your own way, but do it. This podcast is brought to you by Audible. For you, the listeners of the Do Something Beautiful podcast, with a free 30-day trial of Audible, you can get my new book, The Other Side of Beauty, read to you by yours truly for free. All you got to do is go to audibletrial.com slash Darrow. Audible is Amazon's audio bookstore, and it has over 180,000 audiobooks to choose from. And so if you're like me and you like to listen to books while you travel, exercise, or cook, this is perfect for you. To get my audiobook for free, all you got to do is go to audibletrial.com slash Darrow. That's audibletrial.com slash Darrow, and you're in. The Do Something Beautiful podcast is also brought to you by Haiti 180. If you want to do something beautiful in the world, but find yourself busy, possibly overwhelmed with life, family, or work, but you still want to donate money for a good cause, you can still do something beautiful by becoming a Team 180 member. Haiti 180 provides an orphanage for 40 children, two elderly homes, a school for over 200 students, and a medical clinic in a small village in the hills of Haiti. Now, many of the listeners of this podcast have generously donated over $26,000 to build the maternity wing of the new hospital. And for as little as $15 a month, you can sponsor an orphan. That's 50 cents a day, people, 50 cents a day to help a little boy or a little girl have a good and just life. I've been there. I have seen their good works and I continue to give them my time, talent, and treasure. And I'm asking you to do the same. Go to Haiti180.com and do something beautiful with me. That's Haiti180.com. In today's episode, we are speaking with Helen Alvarez. Helen is an advocate for traditional marriage. She's a champion for the feminine genius and she's birth control's worst enemy. Yeah, imagine that. Helen is a professor of law at George Mason University, where she teaches and writes scholarship in the areas of family law and law and religion. She's a consultant for ABC News and board member of Catholic Relief Services. She's been on, she's been a consultant to Pope Francis and Pope Benedict's Pontifical Council for the Laity. She's the author of several books, including one of her latest ones, Putting Children's Interests First in American Family Law with Power Comes Responsibility. Professor Alvarez has received her law degree from Cornell University and her master's in systematic theology from Catholic University of America. She founded Reconnect Media in 2012, and the project out of Reconnect Media is a website that you may be familiar with called Women Speak for Themselves. WomenSpeakForThemselves.com is a website that I sincerely, honestly visit about once a week. About once a week, I'm, I'm back on that website looking for talking points about abortion, about contraception, about reconnecting marriage and children, all of that. It's such a fantastic website. I'm always going back because there's new things that they're putting out every single day. I sign up for their emails so I can get the latest information about what's going on in those areas. I encourage you to do the same. Women Speak for Themselves is a national grassroots movement empowering women to speak in media, local communities, and online about how women are disadvantaged respecting dating and marriage, 
especially because of the contraception and abortion culture, and about how to reconnect sex with marriage and children for the good of all people. Wonderful organization. You definitely want to make sure you download the free ebook that they have available there. It's a great place to go for information. In today's episode, I give Helen rapid fire questions. We have 10 rapid fire questions that, that she answers for us regarding her, you know, the balance of family life and her career, her prayer life, her favorite saint, what she thinks about some of the most current uh, situations happening today in terms of even Alfie Evans. We touch on a wide variety of topics. It's really wonderful. You're going to love it. So without further ado, here is Helen Alvarez. All right. And welcome back to the podcast and welcome, Helen. Helen, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> I am so excited to talk to you. We have got 10 rapid fire questions that I have fielded through request on social media. As I was mentioned to you before we actually began, I wanted to spend this time talking to you about all the things that I wanted to talk to you about because I just love you. I'm one of your biggest fans, but I thought that I probably should ask my listeners because they love you too. So we've gotten some good questions from them and we're just going to start off right off the bat. So the first question we have for you is that in your past and in some of the talks that you've given recently, you've talked about how in your past and in your early career, you sought this worldly success as an attorney. How and when did you make that switch when you realized that your gifts and talents aren't just for you, they're for others? And in this, in this way that how God's used you for the universal church. But how did that look? What was that? What was that switch like for you? Yeah, I wish I could say it was more virtuous and that it was earlier, but maybe I can help other people to be more <laughs> virtuous and make the switch earlier. I would say it was in my mid 40s. I'm sorry to report it took me that long where I, you know, I had been doing work at a high level, at a national at an international level. I have been giving so much of myself to writing good scholarship, and I constantly felt inferior to so many around me and an insufficient scholar. And, and I'd ask God why, if he wanted me to do this work, I wasn't smarter and faster. And I have to say, it came over me that this could not be God's plan for my life to be happy and panting in frustration and all the time. And it, I knew, you know, studying theology and in spirituality, my attraction to love as service that I hadn't really applied that to my work life. I'd only applied it in my personal life. And if I really didn't see even, you know, work at a top tier law school as service and what needed to be written for the church or for, in my case, you know, women, children and families, then I was never going to be happy. I was never going to be doing what God had intended for me. And there was just no way out of the rat race but that. And so thinking now what do I need to do that is in service? First of all, it narrows the universe a bit, which is a big old relief. But also I find the answer and I feel better about the effort I put into my work. It sounds very simple, but that's how it happened. And it seems like whenever we do realign, refocus our will with God's will, our gifts and talents with realizing he's the author of those gifts and talents, that it does streamline our life for us in an easier way rather than opening up ourselves to like culture and the whole world. And you can do anything at any point, any time, and you can be the right. rock star and the singer and the actress and the model. And you can have this degree and you can work in this area. Oh, and if you want to, you could have kids on the side if you really want to, but do you really want right. to? Right. No, it's absolutely true. It's, it cannot be that we are, that our mission is to be 
the absolute shining star on this thing and the next thing and the next thing. We have been given a certain vocation, and it's wonderful when you're doing it well and you feel like you've become the expert at something so that you can assist others. It is a completely different kind of work existence, and mentally, it's just much more peaceful. I absolutely agree. I think what you're saying definitely reflects itself even in popular culture when it comes to television. I was just thinking this when you were that last statement that you made about, I mean, it's not like we have TV shows of America's next top lawyer. Right. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, like, you don't have like America's next best teacher. I mean, right. <laughs> like, we don't, our popular culture seems to want to obviously highlight areas of, I guess, work, if you want to call it that, where right. it, it's not, it probably is not the most fulfilling role for the majority of people on the planet. But anyway, moving on. Okay. Rapid fire. We have to keep this going here. Okay. All right. Second question. Heavy hitter. Here we go. I would love to hear your thoughts. We all would love to hear your thoughts on the Alfie Evans case. Right. And how, so your thoughts there. And then do you see any relationship? Do you see this moving towards the United States healthcare policy? So a couple of things, because I ended up dealing with some reporters on that, I did go and read the opinions in the the United Kingdom Supreme Court on this. So I, and I'm not a bioethicist. So with that background, a couple of things. Number one, it is probably the case that, especially regarding the respirator he was on, that, you know, Catholic bioethical teaching would not require that to be maintained. It would be considered to be extraordinary. It may be considered that his parents were not required to maintain it, but they wish to. And that said, the fact that they were undoubtedly able to raise money and have a hospital willing to take a look at him The thing that strikes people most about that is that the British government refused to let him go. And to me, that is the most frightening thing, because if you read those opinions, several things jump out. One, his lawyer, who was a lawyer, was appointed for the child. So you had the parents versus a lawyer for the child and versus also a lawyer for the hospital. Mm. So the lawyer for the child at one point said to the court, this child's life will have no dignity and therefore this child should receive no care. This was the lawyer for the kid. So this is what this person thought. So that was frightening. It was a complete quality of life evaluation. Second, the fact that the parent's interest in children was not in the child's life was not given preeminence. In the U.S., we still have parents have a constitutional right, and I won't go on about its source, but it's considered a constitutional right to determine their child's education and health care. And it is called the right of care and custody of one's children. The parent has to be given extraordinary deference. And unless they sort of fall through a floor of unfitness or negligence or abuse, the parent should win. And in this case, the parents wanted to be given the, you know, the opportunity to try and save his life in a different way. And other people were willing to help. In the U.S. thus far, that law should carry the parents through if they... I cannot imagine a hospital saying you are not permitted to remove him. They would have completely signed waivers of the hospital's liability for anything that had happened in transit. So to me, the most frightening part of the case was parents who are presumed to act in their children's best interest were not allowed to have preeminence here and that the lawyer for the child believed the child could not have a good life and therefore should die. And the hospital felt the same. It was quality of life evaluation. Would it eventually come here? There's the possibility of a healthcare system that could do that, indeed. Whether that it comes because insurance companies want it or because a single payer health system comes into effect is, I don't know the answer to that. 
But I thought it was absolutely frightening that the parents were not given the option to try and he was not allowed to be released. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it, it was devastating for everybody watching it, especially from the States with the healthcare system we currently have and watching it unfold the way that it did. God rest his soul and sweet St. Alfie, pray for us. But at this point, so in cases like I'm thinking back to the case, gosh, almost 15 years ago or, or maybe more, the Terry um, Schindler Scheibel. Yes. So in that case, it was different because she was obviously a grown woman and she was married and her her parents wanted to keep her and take care of her as she was very well much alive. But her husband was calling the shots because of that union. Is that correct? Yes, it was. That was. And I cannot recall. I don't think he had an actual power of attorney. She was young. I doubt she had filled out something like an end of life plan or a power of attorney. But because they were still married, even though I think he was living with another woman at that time uh, for a while, he had the right. And it wasn't enough that he was deciding that she should end treatment and die for the court to take that right away because that people do that. So it was really the husband's right over the parents. And the state tried to go beyond him and take it away, but didn't succeed. Right. Okay. All right. Just thinking about those two cases, and and that's one of the ones closest to the U.S. that I know that we still talk about and some of that situation there. All right. Very good. Okay, Helen, we're on to another question here. This one's a little bit lighter. So we're moving. We're moving away from our sweet Alfie and we're going on to. Okay. Questions here for you. We have listeners who want to know, what are you reading right now? So I'm a a huge reader, almost obsessive. And I try to, I have a a pretty wide array. I read law, I read theology, I read novels, I read travel books, I read history. So what I'm reading now is, I don't know how many people remember uh, Willa Cather, who writes about the West and about the United States. Death comes to the archbishop about, I think it was the first Catholic archbishop of New Mexico, and her book Shadows on the Rock about this Quebec as a Catholic city and its sort of saintly founders and bishops through the eyes of this incredibly beautiful and good young girl. I think she's 13. Her name is Cecile. So I've been rereading a lot of Willa Cather, uh, My Antonia, Death Comes to the Archbishop, uh, Shadows on the Rock, just sort of running through her novels recently. And then I'm also reading, I always am reading Luigi Giussani. I'm a great devotee of Communion and Liberation and the books of Luigi Giussani, which I read for spiritual reading, but also just uh, for theology. There's a book I can recommend. I have a dear, dear friend. She's the director of Family Life in Arlington Diocese, Therese Bernpohl. She gave me a book that is really kind of life-changing. It's by a Belgian monk named Wilfred Stinnison. And, oh gosh, I don't have it in front of me, but it's like Surrender to Christ or something. Or It is the most powerful spiritual reading I've done about the depth of God's love, the, the plan that he has for us, accepting when things go very poorly, that God grieves with you, and that this is, if you look back and you really reflect on these things in your life, a way forward, that they have been a way forward. They have been a way to greater good. It's really, it's theologically amazing, but it's written very simply. I'm blown away by, that's why I think the book is so successful. In fact, I'm I'm sure I've shot it up on Amazon. I think I've bought eight copies for friends recently. So I'm reading that as well. And then I'm reading an awful lot of books about about First Amendment, freedom of religion, particularly in connection with uh, schools and charities, because I would like to 
I would like to promote a wider base of religious freedom for churches and schools in particular regarding employment. Mm. Amen. Okay, so let's just go back really quickly because I know everyone's going to want to like rewind the podcast a few seconds to figure out again this book. Who is the author of that book again? Wilfred Stinnison. All right. It's something about surrendering to Christ. It is so small and so beautiful. I just finished it this morning and I'm going to go back and I'm going to read it for 10 more days every morning because I, I have to say it has really assisted me in grappling with things I can't control and really assisted me in understanding that I have to let go to God in a far greater degree than I have. Mm, amen. Okay. So we will find the book. <laughs> I will find out where this book is and right. I will make sure I link it into the podcast notes right. just in case all of you are wondering and you're figuring out like trying to like pull over on the side of the road as you're right. driving. Oh, amazing. Don't do that. We will find it for you. We'll add it in the link. Okay. Very good. So we're going to move on. And with that, a kind of follow-up question is, do you have a favorite book? <laughs> So it's either Kristen Lavern's Daughter by Sigrid Unset, written in the 1920s. It's considered the greatest Catholic novel in the history of Catholic novels. I think it's translated into 27 languages. Kristen with a K, Lavern's Daughter, D-A-T-T-E-R. It is about 15th century Catholic Norway. And these characters, it, part of why it appeals to me is because her great struggle is over, you know, sex, love and marriage, which is subjects I deal with all the time. And the struggles of all the characters around her, the amount of goodness and struggles and sin and redemption and unbelievable plot and prose and salvation in that book, it could have been written, except for the fact that the people live their lives within this great understanding that God is with them. It could have been written in the 21st century. It deals with some really stunning, you know, contemporary issues about sex, love, marriage, and parenting. But the story is, it's, I think I've read it four times through and I'm just warning people it's about 1100 pages and it's in four separate books, <laughs> oh but my it's, gosh, it's, gosh. it is the best, I, I, it's the best Catholic novel in the history of Catholic novels. Okay. Once again, don't worry. We're going to make sure we add that link in there in case you want to go and read an 1100 page book, which, Hey, you know what, you, if, you know, assuming you live a long life, you definitely could do that. Go, well, go here's the it. other thing is you have to be patient and get into the names. Like, please don't be put off by the first 50 pages. The names are like, you know, Christian and Laverins and Ragenfrid and, and, and so forth. And you're like, I can't even, you know, it's like, it's like trying to read Anna Karenina and realizing they all really do have four names, but put up with the first 50 pages. And I promise you it's amazing. Absolutely. And if you're a Tolkien nerd like me, you'll be just fine with it because if we can work with a Gandalf and a Frodo, we can easily work with these names too. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So next question, who are your female role models? Yes. So several. There is a sister who is absolutely just the most, just so compassionate and unfailingly kind and patient. So she is definitely one. I would say Marianne Glendon, who's a Harvard law professor who actually, I teach the same subject she teaches. We teach property law, we teach family law. She also has done work on the religious freedom. And that's another one of my main areas of scholarship. And the combination of her, she refuses to be categorized politically. She is Catholic, she's intellectual, she's female, and she's unabashedly all of the above. I love it. Love it. It's beautiful. All right. Okay. Next question. This was a question that was asked to me by many, many women. 
who sent the same question in. So I know that they're going to be listening intently to your answer here. How do you, Holland, balance career and family? Right. Well, the first thing is I learned to toss the word balance out the window. Thank you. Yeah. What I did was, so when I started having children, I was working in the pro-life office at the U.S. Bishops Conference, and it became apparent that I, there were several things happening. One is it was really very full-time, even though I was home a day a week, and it was extremely occupying with the press. Number two, I could see that I just didn't have enough time to just sit and be with my kids. Number three, I had always wanted to be a professor. I'd always wanted to write scholarship and an opportunity came. And I am, again, I realize how privileged I am and people will go, oh, well, that's how she did it, which is because, you know, I'm able to have this very flexible schedule. Obviously, I teach full time. I'm a professor. I had to write a lot of scholarship to get tenure and to get the rank of full professor. But I was really, really disciplined about it. And I, you know, I would get up and write from 4.45 till 7 when they got up. And but I was able to drive everybody to school, pick everybody up after school, go to events, et cetera. But part of it was a kind of drop and give me 50 mentality, which is when I did have an hour, I would drop and write scholarship so that I could proceed to get tenure. The other thing is my husband is really, really hugely great and cooperative. We always tried not to live up to anything we were earning. So we kind of lived a very secondhand lifestyle. So I didn't worry about money in the sense that I could take jobs that, you know, not from maximum money. I could I could go for something that had a better life and less money because we have really crappy old cars and all my furniture is like secondhand and my clothes are secondhand and my house is funky and old and not expensive to run and it's small. And so I kept all those lifestyle factors really small, nothing large to clean, nothing to dry clean. If something gets ruined, hey, it was 50 bucks. It's not the end of the world. And then I think the final piece of advice was I had a secretary who was so amazing at the Bishop's Conference. She's an African-American woman who was really kind of a famous dancer before civil rights. And she she was dancing all over the world. Her mother was helping her raise these two kids when she went hither and yon. And when I was absolutely grieving not to be home with the babies uh, when they were really small, and then at that one point, you know, I had a five-year-old, three-year-old, and a newborn. And she said to me, you know, Helen, I'm just going to tell you my experience. She said, you know, you grieve that you're not there every day in the very beginning. And she goes, really, I'm just telling you, plot and plan to be home when they're in school. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. I thought it was the other way around. She goes, find yourself a way to be available all the time. They're not in school. She goes, that's when it's complicated. That's when it takes many more hours just to be, just to be present. And you're not doing stuff as much. You're not changing diapers and and swapping out car seats. But so I actually thought that advice was good. And when it came time when there was in, you know, and it was in my daughter's kinder, I guess it was beginning of first grade, I, I began to teach. So I've been doing that. So she's, uh, she'll be, you know, she's almost 25. So it's been like uh, 20, you know, 20 and a half years or so, 20 years. I really kind of reversed what most people did. And I, I was in a pretty demanding thing when they were tiny, even though I could work from home and I brought them with me places. I had some flexibility, but then I got crazy flexibility when they were a little older. And that really worked for all of us because that's when they just needed me to be around right. and to talk about anything. And that, that worked for us. And it's, um, you know, they're all grown now. It was, it didn't feel frenetic at home because of that. Yeah. And I think it's so good to 
remind all of us when I'm listening to your advice right now is that there are seasons for all of that. There's this ebb and flow of like, it's not always going to be the way it is forever. Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, I, uh, when I, I saw, I have this vision in my head of when my daughter was in kindergarten before first grade and before I switched into teaching, I remember going to pick her up at a summer camp because I, you know, I was working in the summertime and I pulled up and she really did look miserable. And I thought this kid needs to be home more. This kid does not like being out of the house in the summer. She wants to lay around and read a book. And I thought, what can I do to make that happen? And God was very good. And I got a call from a law school that said, you know, we've been thinking you'd be a good law professor. Why don't you give us a try? There you go. go. All right. Very good. Okay. So moving on, talking about law school or just law in general, we're going to have a question for, I have a whole bunch of We had about maybe seven, actually, seven young women who are in law school all around the United States, and they sent in a question saying, okay, Helen, please give us advice. How did you survive law school? And once you're out, what was the best way to look for a job that you can still maintain your faith at and still do God's work in? Which is, that's kind of like a loaded question, I know, but there you go. Well, the answer (laughs) to the first part is barely, and with the help of my now husband, I really, I went into law school, I had skipped some grades. So I was just 20 when I got started and uh, 23 when I was practicing. (laughs) And that's too young. That was a mistake. But that aside, I was very immature and I was really insecure. I just tanked my first semester. And then it was my husband now, then, then boyfriend, who said, listen, you know, you cannot judge your entire value as a person by whether or not you are a lawyer or how well you do in every course. Give it your all, but remind yourself constantly that this is not a judgment of who you are before God and men and women, (laughs) that you are more than this. And if you like it, you like it. And if you don't, you don't. So go for it without fear. Think to yourself, I could leave here any second I wanted. This is not, you know, marked out for me if it's if I hate it. And I went after it that second semester with everything I had just to say, all right, I'm going to do what I think I would do if I really wanted to stay and I wanted to know this stuff and I wasn't afraid. And But I was terrified the first semester. Second semester, I went after it just as a like an, in, you know, an intellectual project and say, well, let's see if I like this. And it went very well. And I really, I learned how to go about it better by getting rid of the fear and just working like a dog. I mean, literally after every class, I would, at those days, we didn't have a computer. So I would rewrite every single one of my notes interpolating the classroom conversation. And then I would outline like every two to three weeks. And then I would do like a major outline at the end of the month. And then I would do another major outline after two and another after three. I was rewriting and rewriting and rewriting to get, I would get like from 160 written pages down to like 15. And by the time I had that, I had it in my head. So it was my husband reminding me that I was more than my law school grades. How regarding a career, again, you know, some people really are like suited to big law and they like it and they like the intellectual challenge. I did big law for three years. And I do think if people really like being a lawyer and they want to be a lawyer for a good cause, which so many, you know, wonderful people do, it's still better. This is just my advice. It's not everybody's, but know how to lawyer first. Don't go dump into a nonprofit that has you, you know, emptying the wastebaskets and writing PR copy And, you know, doing some legal work or, you know, public commentary about law and policy, go learn how to do law, learn how law is done, practice it, whether it's governmental, whether it's private. And then if you want to give yourself over to a cause, frankly, you as a lawyer are more valuable to them. The other thing is, you know, I mentioned before, don't live up to a big income. If you have it and you're not sure this is your life's work, make sure you can leave it. 
I had a, a you know situation where three jobs in a row I took every time I took a job it was a step down mm-hmm. uh, in pay. But we had sort of set ourselves up so that you know we just didn't have a lot of bills to do that for. We had I think between our three cars the uh, the the one we're giving to our daughter. And we have a, you know, between them, they're like, like 32 years old and they have about 500 some thousand miles on them <laughs> and so forth. And it's, you know, it's just, it allowed us to be free to go to something else. And there, you know, there's not a ton of legal jobs that are actually going to require you to say, compromise your fundamental integrity, you know, represent people who you think, oh my gosh, I don't really do not want to be a spokesperson or representative of this woman or this man. But there's a lot that is, you know, sort of soul stultifying, and that is difficult. And not everybody, you know, to me, you know, I've worked for the church for so long, and but I did work, you know, in big law. And I have a sister who, the sister I mentioned is a role model for me, who's owned her own business for 35 years. And if you're in something that does not itself have a cause orientation, then to me, I think she is a role model for how to do business. Completely honest, gives her all. She becomes friends with her customers. She's not just giving them a product. She's also giving them a part of herself. If she loses those customers, years later, they come back to her because they remember her service and her kindness. If they get sick, if their spouse is sick, she's a person in their life. She wants their business to succeed. She wants them to make money. She wants them to support their family. She gets to know their families. So there's a way of doing business, even that is not itself religious or cause-oriented that is for the common good, that is for the other person. Honesty is the rock bottom of it, but an honest job, a really, you know, a good job, and then a an actual desire to serve your customers as people. And I, you know, I that is very fulfilling. She has an incredibly loyal customer base. It's a PR firm in Philadelphia called Alvare.com. And her relationships with people are holy, in my view. Mm-hmm. Amen. That speaks to all of us, regardless of, of law or not. I mean, whatever we're doing, that we can act in such a way and connect with the person in front of us that we don't forget that we are connected, that we are a human family. Mm-hmm. Amen. All right. Perfect. So, so good. All right. We've got three questions left. Perfect. Number eight. Number eight. <laughs> Helen, who is your favorite saint? St. Paul. Because Why? He's, he's so mouthy. He's so bold. He's brilliant, but utterly self-deprecating. He's afraid, but he acts as if he's unafraid because that's what God has given him to do. His capacity to understand and to instruct is peerless, in my view. His willingness to suffer and still carry out his vocation. I just find him, in fact, my youngest son, when I was pregnant with my youngest and they told me he might be born either you know, very sick or even dying and everything. I resolved that instant to name him Paul because of that saint and the the strength that I needed and that I thought he would need. And he had very minor issues at birth, but the doctors like freaked me out. Anyway, I just, St. Paul is just fierce and he's full of, you know, problems and falls down on the job. And he was, he was killing people before he became (laughs) who he was. And I just, I just find him a complete inspiration to get up and keep going. Do you have a favorite scripture verse from Paul that, that, that you always go back to or anything? No, no. I just read him constantly. I just love him. I mean, I, I often use his analogy about marriage and Ephesians. I love everything that he talks about when he talks about what a sinner he is and how weak he is and he's a fool. 
But that's why he's strong because he knows who runs the place. I love it. Yeah, I know. I, I, I love that too. My husband and I got married purposely on the feast day of Saints Peter and Paul on June 29th. That's great. Uh, because Peter and Paul are, are important to us as well. So uh, that, that, that's that's awesome. All right, here we go. Moving on. Number nine. Number nine. I am really excited to actually to ask you this question. So what time do you get up in the morning? It's a two-part question. <laughs> what time do you get up in the morning? Typically, you know, on average. And then the second part of this question is, what does your prayer life look like? Right. So I get up at six, sometimes 540. But I used to get up at 4.45, so I'm totally slipping. And Such a slacker, Ellen. Yes. And my, actually, those questions, those two questions are connected because the first thing I do so it doesn't get away, I, well, actually, I I have to get the dishes out of the sink. The the dishes are always uh, piled in the sink. So I clean up the kitchen counter. Um, You know, you'd think I left it clean the night before, but no, there's a pile in the morning. And then I make my daughter and I, she's just, she's off to grad school in the fall, but she's been with us two years post-college. She gets up in the morning and reads usually theology for an hour. That's going to be her graduate work. So I make us both a really strong cup of coffee. We sit in the living room together and I do my spiritual reading then. And it's uh, usually it's Benedict, Jasani, and Stinison. Okay. Very, very good. I love that question. I love finding out what time uh, uh, people wake up. Brian Lamb on C-SPAN always used to ask people, so where do you write and how do you write? And and do you write for an hour, two hours? Do you write all day? Do you write on the weekends? Like, where do you get your inspiration? And I, I love watching those book notes things because the when I just finished my first big scholarly book and it was published just really at the beginning of January of this year. And, you know, really all those things about how do you get yourself to carry forward on this bare of a writing project. And I, I love hearing how people organize their lives to do what they do. I do too. And I've I found when I ask this question to people who are successful in their fields, their areas of expertise, I find out that nobody wakes up later than 6 a.m. Really? No one. No, no one wakes up later than 6 a.m. It's just like they, and whatever it is, regardless, male or female, especially female and especially with kids, they're usually yeah. up earlier because they know. That yeah. well, once those kids wake, you know, stuff happens. No, so, stuff yeah. happens. I like that. You know, it's very true. And and previously I used to get up like two hours before they did to get writing done. Now I can write, you know, whenever I have the discipline to do it. So I don't need to get up quite so early. Yeah. Amen. I, I went when I was writing my last book, I towards the end, I would say this wasn't the whole time, but towards the end when the pressure was on and yeah. deadlines were coming. I was waking up at 345 oh and getting in a solid two to three hours in oh. and then it was done. And then I could not think about it until the next morning at 345 a.m. Oh. When did you collapse? Like at what time at night? Now I'm asking you. 9 p.m. I would. Yeah, I was going to say that would be about right for me. I collapse. Really, I should go to bed closer to 10, but it's closer to 11. So I'd like to sleep a little bit more than seven hours, but that's what I can do right yeah. now. Hey, hey, listen, you you just do what you got. You know, you got right. right. you to make it work. Okay. So sadly, I am so sad, but we have been so good to keep it here to 10 questions. And we got one more for you. There's going to be so many more. So hopefully we can have you back on the podcast. But so we're going to wrap up with this last question. I love this last question because it's one of my favorite sites to visit frequently. I'm on this website at least once a week. No joke. 
and it is the Women Speak for Themselves that you founded, I believe, correct? That's right. That's correct. All right. So So, so I'd love to know, can you tell us a little bit about that, the mission behind it, if no one has ever heard of that before? And really, the second piece to that question is, how can we get involved with this? Oh, music to my ears. Thank you. So Women Speak for Themselves, it was accidentally founded when I put an open letter to a couple of friends in opposition to the Obama administration's contraception mandate, because the hype, the campaign for the mandate was, you know, women's number one priority is sex without any relationship to children and indifferent to marriage, you know, or not. And women value this so much that they don't care if we trample religious freedom by forcing religious institutions to provide this. So I sent out a letter to about 24 people, and now we've got 75,000 women involved. And I, I did not like spam anybody. Woman just sent it to woman, sent it to woman. So clearly this struck a note when I said, listen, women actually do not regard as their highest value sex unrelated to marriage or kids. That's just we have a lot going on in our lives. And sure, we think sex is good, but we actually like it with commitment. And women actually do usually also want children. And when you dissociate sex from even the idea that it's the place where every new human life begins, I mean, God could have done it anywhere, right? But he did it here. What does it mean about it? Then it hasn't proved a good environment for women. The market, if you will, for dating, sex and marriage has been really, really bad for women since sex became so weightless and so inconsequential. So Women Speak for Themselves first rose up as a lot of women who I was getting active to write to the administration, to write to newspapers, because the claim was, if you loved women, then you loved the contraception mandate. And other women were just female impersonators, right? So we got our women super active on this. Well, it turned out that what women were really looking for even more was, how do I combat, I guess you could say in short term, you know, the sexual revolution, the idea that the greatest freedom for women is just sexual expression indifferent to marriage and kids. So we see how it's affected dating. We see, you know, its consequences in the Me Too movement. We see the decline of marriage, the fact that poor women in particular struggle to find husbands in their neighborhoods, you know, because of the, whether it's crime or drugs or incarceration, and they still want kids, but they really don't have access to marriage. So Women Speak for Themselves is designed to not only reduce the immiseration of women in this sex and marriage marketplace, but also to reduce the demand for abortion that a crisis pregnancy is, which crisis pregnancy is brought on by this sexual marketplace that just doesn't, that is not acting in women's interest. So we have really, we have two kinds of things we do. One is give women actual information about the sexual marketplace and things that are pro-woman ways of reacting to it. And number two We actually put out how-to materials. How do you lobby your member of Congress on issues that we care about? How do you write a letter to the local newspaper? How do you do other kinds of activism? And whenever our women do it, we then say, hey, look what other women are doing. And we are literally trying to raise up a cadre of women. And I would love to have hundreds of thousands and millions on this website, womenspeakforthemselves.com in order to give them the information they need. We have women doing everything from getting their kids' high schools to combat pornography more effectively, to getting their local store to get rid of Cosmopolitan magazine because it's degrading to women, to getting women to, like the New York Times has had an invitation for women to write in, what do you think about the Women's March? And we make that available to our 75,000 women. I do online training 
I have money to bring 25 women a year to Washington and we give them two full days of media and public speaking and social media training. So it's to raise up a cadre of women who are sufficient to turn the sexual revolution around that is immiserating women and creating the demand for abortion. That's that's a I know that's long, but that's a short summary of its work. Yes. Okay. And one of the things I love on here, too, a lot of people ask me these questions on social media. I get a lot of emails from you listeners here from the podcast asking me, hey, how do I talk to people about contraception? How do I talk to people about natural family planning or just women's freedom and a lot of these different areas of abortion and contraception realms? And so I send people here. I send people to the fact sheet right here. So there is a link right here, womenspeakforthemselves.com. But they have a fact sheet and they have, they answer all of these questions for you. So if you're trying to figure out how do I talk about this? What do I say? Well, womenspeakforthemselves.com has given you all the information. So I always send people here. And oh, now that you're listening, all of you new listeners here, we have a whole bunch of new ones that have just been added on over the past few months. Here's your answer. There you go. Oh. If you have that question, this is so good. And then you have a free ebook that you can download as well on the website. Yeah. It's called If You Want to Talk About Abortion, You Have to Talk About Sex. So. You've got a lot of people working to basically, you know, control and limit the supply of abortion. You might say that we're working on the demand side, right? We are working to try and lower and eradicate the demand for abortion by getting rid of these, you know, these uncommitted relationships where women really thinking too little of themselves end up experiencing crisis pregnancies. Absolutely. It's the grassroots form of the pro-life movement is talking about contraception and talking as well, even prior to that chastity too. And this virtue and the worth of a woman and who she is and how she was made to be. So much of that. Yes, it's perfect there. It's a great ebook. I have it. I love telling people about this. It's one of my favorite resources to give people as well on these topics. So thank you for what you've done so much with this website. It is so empowering to go and to look at all of the information because you really feel like, yeah, you can actually have a logical calm conversation about these topics in a world where everybody's trying to just like throw condoms at you and contraception and abortion. Right. Which does nothing for becoming a person who can love, becoming a person who can take care of people, becoming a person who feels free in their relationships. Yes. Amen. All right, Helen. So one last thing I ask all of my guests before we wrap up, if you can give us a challenge, could you give our listeners a challenge today before we wrap up? Well, I guess it would be, you know, what small thing could you do in your network, whether it's your family, your friends, or your kid's school, the place that you work, in order to help women understand that they really need to be building up committed, solid, chaste relationships between men and women for the future, that they have to rebuild in people's minds the idea of the goodness of men and women together and be done with all of this idea that just sexual expression itself is the highest freedom or, you know, marriage is not for another 20 years. I'll wait till I'm 35 or whatever. But to build up the goodness of male-female relationships in the communities they, they actually have, what could you do? What could you do? Very good. Very good question to ask yourselves. That is our challenge from the day. Helen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your time. And thank you for answering our 10 rapid fire questions that 
we have pulled around to give you today. Thank you for doing this. This is a great service. I really appreciate it. Oh, you bet. Anytime. All right. And thank you, listeners of the Do Something Beautiful podcast. Thank you for being with us again for another fantastic episode. And I love to be able to honestly say that because I have the best guest. I just do. And I love having them on. I love that you get to hear from them and listen from them. And remember, whatever you do today, whoever God brings to you, whatever challenges, whatever suffering, whatever joys that you have, make sure that you do something beautiful for God. God love you. God bless. And we'll talk to you next time. 